Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX is The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The Ghost of Christmas Past. I'm Jason Horton. I'm Rebecca Lieb. And this is Ghost Town. Do you remember Andy Williams' 1963 Christmas song, The Most Wonderful Time of the Year. Classic. Classic. The singer lists off festive traditions associated with Christmas. One of them, one line that is, is there'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. That doesn't sound classic as far as Christmas. Right? I don't think so either. And so I looked into it. (laughs) Um, This is a nod to a tradition that I'm bringing back tonight. We're here collectively to start a new tradition, and that is Scary Ghost Story Christmas. In Victorian England, Christmas stories were absolutely a thing. A Christmas Carol published in 1843 is a ghost story and one of many Christmas-themed ghost stories Charles Dickens wrote. People don't know this, but for much of the 19th century, Christmas was totally associated with ghosts and supernatural and crazy shit like that. It was totally normal. It was like... Halloween 2. Not the movie, but it was like the holiday. Whenever five or six English-speaking people met around a fire on Christmas Eve, they start telling each other ghost stories. Author K. Jerome wrote in his 1891 collection, Told After Supper, Nothing satisfies us on Christmas Eve but to hear each other tell authentic anecdotes about specters. It is a genial, festive season, and we love to muse upon the graves and dead bodies and murders and blood. Just like us! They're just like us. The tradition probably went back centuries when bored families would just tell each other freakishly scary stories all night. Kind of like what I did in college, plus Everclear. But ghost storytelling was a tradition that Puritans were not very into, as you might imagine, so it never gained traction in America. Washington Irving helped resurrect a number of forgotten Christmas traditions in the early 19th century, but it really was Dickens who popularized the notion of telling a ghost story on Christmas Eve and leaned into it a ton with his Christmas editions of publications he edited, but kind of stopped himself around the 1800s. But in Europe, 
the idea of telling a Christmas ghost story was pretty set at this point. Even the idea of Santa Claus was much more sinister during the Victorian era. An English legend had him paired up with the devil in like a good cop, bad cop duo to figure out which children had been naughty and which had been nice and how their fates should be carried out. The devil sometimes guised as Krampus, kidnapped and beat disobedient children while Santa was often depicted in Christmas cards, slinking around and spying on children through windows which is incredibly Victorian. And Krampus, too, is something that I think a lot of people are familiar with, the idea of this, like, Christmas demon or warlock. But I want to say Krampus is its own thing. Victorian-era Christmas was more of, like, evil Santa Claus, not really Krampus-y. Even as late as 1915, Christmas annuals of magazines were still dominated by ghost stories, Santa beatings, and weird Victorian Christmas cards. Florence Kingsland's 1904 book of indoor and outdoor games still lists ghost stories as a fine fare for a Christmas celebration. The realm of spirits was always thought to be nearer to that of mortals on Christmas than any other time, she writes. So I'm going to read you an abbreviated classic Christmas ghost story. It's a pretty famous one. It's called The Kit Bag by Algernon Blackwood, published in Pall Mall Magazine, 1908. So grab a cup of hot cocoa, watch out for an evil Santa a-peeping inside your window. This is The Kit Bag. When the words not guilty sounded through the crowded courtroom that dark December afternoon, Arthur Willibram, the leader of the triumphant defense, was represented by his junior. But Johnson, his private secretary, carried the verdict across to his chambers like lightning. It's what we expected, I think, said the barrister, without emotion, and personally, I'm glad this case is over. There was no particular sign of pleasure that his defense of John Turk, the murderer, on plea of insanity had been successful, for no doubt he felt, as everyone who had watched the case felt, that no man had ever better deserved the gallows. I'm glad too, said Johnson. He'd sat in court for ten days watching the face of the man who had carried out with callous detail one of the most brutal and cold-blooded murders of recent years. The counsel glanced up at his secretary. They were more employer and employed. For family and other reasons, they were friends. Ah, I remember, yes, he said with a kind smile. And you want to get away for Christmas. You're going to skate and ski in the Alps, aren't you? If I was your age, I'd come with you. Johnson laughed shortly. He was a young man of 26 with a delicate face like a girl's. I can catch the morning boat now, he said. But that's not the reason I'm glad the trial is over. I'm glad it's over because I've seen the last of that man, John Turks the murderer's dreadful face. It positively haunted me. Johnson shook hands and took his leave. At the door, he turned suddenly. I know there was something I wanted to ask you, he said. Would you mind lending me one of your kit bags? It's too late to get one tonight, and I leave in the morning before the shops are open. Of course, I'll send Henry over with it to your rooms. She'll have it the moment I get home. I promise to take great care of it, said Johnson gratefully, delighted to think that within 30 hours he would be nearing the brilliant sunshine of the high Alps in winter. In the hall, he met his landlady, shading a candle from the droughts with her thin hand. This come by a man from Mr. Wilbram's, sir. She pointed to what evidently was the kit bag, and Johnson thanked her and took it upstairs with him. His friend had lent him the very thing, a stout canvas kit bag, sack-shaped with holes round the neck for the brass bar and padlock. It was not a very nice bag to have sent him, certainly not a new one, or one that his chief valued. He gave the matter a passing thought and went on with his packing. Soon, he heard footsteps, but goes back to packing. And two of my senses, headed, keeping up the pretense, have played me the most absurd tricks. The steps I heard and the figure I saw were both entirely imaginary. He went back to the front room, poked the fire into a blaze, and sat down before it to think. What impressed him more than anything else was the fact that the kit bag was no longer where he had left it at. 
It had been dragged nearer to the floor. I shall finish my packing and go to bed. No doubt at this rate I shall hear steps and things all night. But his face was deadly white all the same. He snatched up his field glasses and walked across the bedroom, humming a music hall song as he went, a trifle too loud to be natural, and the instant he crossed the threshold and stood within the room, something turned cold about his heart, and he felt every hair on his head stood up. The kit bag lay close in front of him, several feet nearer to the door than he had left it. And just over his crumpled top, he saw a head and face slowly sinking down out of sight as though someone were crouching behind it as if to hide. And at the same moment, a sound like a long-drawn sigh was distinctly audible in the still air about him and between the gusts of the storm outside. Johnson had more courage and willpower than the girlish indecision of his face indicated, but at first such a wave of terror came over him that for some seconds he could do nothing but stand and stare. A violent trembling ran down his back and legs, and he was conscious of a foolish, almost hysterical impulse to scream aloud. That sigh seemed his very ear, and the air still quivered with it. It was unmistakably a human sigh. "'Who's there?' he said at length, fielding his voice, but thought he meant to speak with a loud decision. The tones came out instead a faint whisper, for he had partly lost control of his tongue and lips. He stepped forward so that he could see all round and over the kit bag. Of course there was nothing there, nothing but the faded carpet and the bulging canvas sides." He put out his hands and threw open the mouth of the sack where it had fallen over, being only three parts full, and then he saw for the first time that round the inside, some six inches from the top, ran a broad smear of dull crimson. It was an old and faded bloodstain. He uttered a scream and drew back his hands as if they had been burnt. At the same moment, the kit bag gave a faint but unmistakable lurch forward towards the door. Johnson collapsed backwards, searching with his hands for the support of something solid, and the door, being further behind him than he realized, received his weight just in time to prevent his falling, and shut to it a resounding bang. And shut to it a resounding bang. At that same moment, the swinging of his left arm accidentally touched the electric switch, and the light in the room went out. It was an awkward and disagreeable predicament, and if Johnson had not been possessed of real pluck, he may have done all the manner of foolish things. As it was, however, he pulled himself together, groped furiously for the little brass knob to turn the light on again. But the rapid closing of the door had set the coats hanging on a swinging, and his fingers became entangled in a confusion of sleeves and pockets, so that those some moments before he found the switch. And in those few moments of bewilderment and terror, two things happened that sent him beyond recall over the boundary into the region of genuine horror. He distinctly heard the kit bag shuffling heavy across the floor in jerks, and close in front of his face sounded once again the sigh of a human being. In his anguished efforts to find the brass button on the wall, he nearly scraped the nails from his fingers, but even then, in those frenzied moments of alarm, so swift and alert are the impressions of a man keyed up by vivid emotion. He had time to realize he dreaded the return of the light, and that it might be better for him to stay hidden in the merciful screen of darkness." It was but the impulse of a moment, however, and before he had time to act upon it, he had yielded automatically to the original desire, and the room was flooded again with light. But the second instinct had been right. It would have been better for him to have stayed in the shelter of the kind darkness, for there, close before him, bending over the half-packed kit bag, clear as life in the merciless glare of the electric light, stood the figure of John Turk, the murderer. Not three feet from him, the man stood, the fringe of black hair marked plainly against the pallor of the forehead, the whole terrible presentment of the scoundrel. And we're going to take a quick break and get back to it. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now... All you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, 
and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And we're back. Back to John Turk, the murderer. In a flash, Johnson realized what it had all meant. The dirty and much used bag, the smear of crimson within the top, the dreadful stretch condition of the bulging sides. He remembered how the victim's body had been stuffed in a canvas bag for burial, the ghastly dismembered fragments forced with lime into this very bag, and the bag itself produced it as evidence. It all came back to him clear as day. Very softly and stealthily, his hand groped behind him for the handle of the door. But before he could actually turn it, the very thing that the most of all dreaded came about, and John Turk lifted his devil's face and looked at him. Very softly and stealthily, his hand groped behind him for the handle of the door, but before he could actually turn it, the very thing that the most of all had dreaded came about, and John Turk lifted his devil's face and looked at him. At the same moment, the heavy sigh passed through the air of the room, formulated somehow into words, It's my bag, and I want it. Johnson just remembered clawing the door open and falling in a heap up on the floor of the landing as he tried frantically to make his way up to the front room. He remained unconscious for a long time, and it was still dark when he opened his eyes and realized that he was lying, stiff and bruised, on the cold boards. Then the memory of what he had seen rushed back into his mind, and he promptly fainted again. Soon he awoke to Mrs. Monk's voice, loud and voluble. "'What? You ain't been to bed, sir? Are you ill? Has anything happened?' And there's an urgent gentleman to see you, though it ain't seven o'clock yet, and who is it, he stammered, some of them Mrs. Wilbraham's, and he says he ought to see you quick before you go abroad, and I told him, show him up, please, at once, and Johnson, whose head was whirling, his mind was still full of dreadful visions, Mr. Wilbraham's man came in with many apologies and explained briefly and quickly that the absurd mistake had been made, and that the wrong kit bag had been sent over the night before. Henry somehow got hold of the one that came over from the courtroom, and Mr. Wilbram only discovered it when he saw his own lying in his room and asked why it had not gone to you, the man said. Oh, Johnson said stupidly, and he must have brought you the one from the murder case instead, sir, I'm afraid, the man continued, without the ghost of an expression on his face. The one John Turk packed the dead both in. Mr. Wilbram's awful upset about it, sir, and told me to come over first thing in the morning with the right one as you were leaving by the boat. He pointed to a clean-looking kit bag on the floor, which he just brought. And I was to bring the other one back, sir, he added casually. For some minutes, Johnson could not find his voice. At last, he pointed in the direction of the bedroom. The man disappeared into the other room and was gone for five minutes. Johnson heard the shifting to and fro of the bag and the rattle of the skates and boots being unpacked. Thank you, sir, the man said, returning with the bag folded over his arm. And can I do anything more to help you, sir? What is it? asked Johnson, seeing that he still had something he wished to say. The man shuffled and looked mysterious. Beg pardon, sir, but knowing your interest in the Turk case, I thought you'd like to know what's happened. Yes. John Turk killed himself last night with poison and immediately on getting his release, he left a note for Mr. Willibram saying that he'd be much obliged if they'd have him put away, same as the woman he murdered, in the old kit bag. What time did he do it? asked Johnson. Ten o'clock last night, sir, the warder says. The end. And to all, a good night.
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.